chunking it to the other end. Like it's not even getting on the treadmill. She's just throwing it. She like throws our bread off behind her. I'm like, man, what did our bread do to you? We want to eat that. And so, and so we, we finally get checked out and we finally get ready to go. She's like, have a wonderful day. Come back and see us. I'm like, you do not want us to come back. It's obvious you don't want us to come back. How could you just keep lying to us like that and pretending like you care when you really don't? Well, as we were getting in the truck and as I was thinking about this passage, I couldn't help but think, that's sort of the way we approach church sometimes. That's sort of the way we approach the Lord sometimes. Well, I'll do it. I'll come and I'll punch the clock and I'll do what I'm supposed to do, but that don't mean i got to like it. He better hurry up and get done so we can get in the front of the line. You know, I mean, that, that sort of thing. Let's get this over with so I can go and get on with the rest of my life. And, and we don't actually approach worship. We don't actually approach serving the Lord with the mindset of this is a joy or this is something that I get to do. It's more something we have to do. We don't actually put our heart into it. We don't actually consider the privilege we have of approaching the throne of the one who made all things. We forget that we get the privilege of serving the one who created us and is remaking us in the image of his son. And so that we forget how much of a blessing it can be together with God's people and worship him. I don't want us just to punch a clock and go home. I want us to, to have real life joy. And so there's three things that Jesus wants for us this morning. So we look at this passage. The first one is he wants us to have real joy in real life. Like he, he wants us to have real joy in real life with real people. Secondly, he wants us to have real worship as we have a real relationship with the real God. And then finally, he wants us to have real faith in a real Savior. And so Jesus wants you to have real joy. Let's, let's talk about this first. We see this in the first half of chapter 2. Uh, we'll, we'll try and space out our time here and try and work through it quickly, but... But we're, we're going to take each of these sections, these scenes uh, from John chapter 2 and see what Jesus wants for us. So first off, he wants us to have real joy. <clears throat> we see this in verses 1 and 2, beginning. It says, On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. We pray with me this morning? Father, I pray that you'd be with us. God, I pray as we open up your word and study your word together, God, that you would speak to us, Lord, that you would speak through me. God, I pray that uh, you would just use this time now, Lord. We need your help. We need your grace. We need your mercy. God, we, we can't change apart from your power. God, we can't be made new apart from your strength that you give us. Lord, I pray that you would prepare our hearts to hear from you now. I pray that we wouldn't be distracted, that we'd be focused on you. I pray that you would bless this time that we have together now, God, that you would use it to draw us uh, closer to yourself and closer to each other. And God, that you would use this time to energize us to go out and serve a world that is lost and hurting and broken. And God, as we are hurting and broken this morning, God, I pray that you would heal us, God, that you would mend the pieces, pull us back together. God, help us to love you more. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And so this first section here, we see that Jesus wants us to have real joy. When, the reason why I bring this up is that we see Jesus at a wedding. He goes to a wedding party. Now, when you think about weddings, it's not what we have today, where it's like, okay, let's run them through, get, get it done, and, and move on. No, this wedding would take, uh, for those of you who plan weddings, you know it takes way longer, right? And so, but, uh, but, uh, but in this day, they would take a whole week. Imagine having a wedding for a whole week. 
That does not sound like fun, does it? Like, like they're, they're, everybody would take off work and they would all come and there'd be all these people from, the, from around. It would be this wondrous, joyful occasion. So, except for everybody, except for the groom. He had, he had to pay for everything, right? And so he had to pay for all these people to eat for a week. And so, but, that, but that's what they would do. They would take off and they would go and they would just enjoy life. It's this huge time of celebration. There's laughing and telling stories and, and doing all kinds of stuff. Just enjoying life together. And here in the middle of this huge celebration, this huge party, is Jesus and his disciples. The most holy person ever to walk in the, on this planet. Jesus is invited to this wedding. It says here in verse, verses 1 and 2 that Jesus is invited. Like they actually liked him and wanted to spend time with him. They wanted to be around him. And apparently he wanted to be around the people in of his community. He wanted to be around these people who are celebrating which makes him sort of the opposite of the religious figures of the day, of the religious leaders, because they're not so fun to have around. You can imagine, like, they, they fasted twice a week, right? And so you can imagine them showing up at the wedding and being like, hey, you know, Rabbi Frank, you want some, some fish or something? He's like, no, I'm too holy for all of that. You know, I've, I'm fasting today. And, like, I'm wearing sackcloth and ashes. Can't you tell how, how terrible I feel? Like, just ruining everybody's day, right? Jesus is over there enjoying himself, enjoying being around people. He is enjoying being a part of the community that he's in. But the, the other folks, that, these folks that would criticize Jesus were removing themselves. They weren't being a part of the, the social culture around them. In fact, they hated Jesus for what he did. They, they would say that he eats with sinners uh, and tax collectors and that he receives them. They would, they would say, why do you not fast? Like, why aren't you fasting like us? Why aren't you miserable like us? They wanted him miserable like they were. They thought that was part of serving God. Guys, I want to tell us this morning that you can be a believer and follow Jesus and not be miserable. Jesus shows us that you can actually enjoy life and not be miserable and follow him. This is what he did. He spent time with people. It, he, he knew what it was to actually enjoy life. I think some of us this morning need to repent of our misery. We need to repent of our just lack of joy in our hearts and lack of happiness and lack of enjoying anything. Jesus knew what it was to enjoy life. And so they're, they're there, they're enjoying, they're celebrating. And we come to verse 3. Something embarrassing happens. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And so like I said a minute ago, these weddings would take like a week. They, it's like the wedding that will never end. You know, you thought you've been to some long weddings. And so, so but as they go into the week, they, they run out of wine. There's no wine left. And so this would have been a great insult to the bride and her family. Like there's, there's actually evidence that if a bride and her family feel insulted by the lack of supplies or whatever for a wedding, they would sue the groom. Like, I mean, this is a big deal in this culture. Like this husband and wife may never get over the fact that they ran out of wine at their wedding. And so Mary comes to Jesus and she says, hey, they're out of wine. And so Jesus' response to her is, woman, what does this have to do with me? It's my new favorite verse, by the way. That's a good verse, isn't it? I, by the way, I, I'm just going to be honest. I tried it yesterday. It doesn't work. This has everything to do with you. I told you, take the trash out, right? And so, but I, I mean, that's a good verse. You should crochet that on a pillow or something. Woman, what does this have to do with me? And so I don't recommend it, I'm just going to say. But, but this is what Jesus says to his mother. Does he mean 
something mean by this? Is he disrespecting her? No, what he is saying is, it's a very formal term. It's, it's not quite ma'am, but it's something along the, word, the lines of ma'am. It's definitely not mama. And what he's doing is he's separating himself from his earthly mother because he's getting ready to do, he's getting ready to go to the cross. And so he knows this is where he's heading. And so he's beginning to separate himself from his family. And he's beginning to separate himself from his earthly connections. And so we, we see this taking place between him and Mary, and we'll see it with the rest of his family as he goes on. And so uh, we come to verse 5. Uh, she, he just says, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My time has not yet come. But then in verse 5, his mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. So apparently he didn't say, No, I won't help. He just simply said, What does that have to do with me? What is there between me and you? What relationship is going on here? But his mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. That's probably a better verse to memorize, by the way. Whatever Jesus tells us we ought to do. But then we come to verse 6. <clears throat> now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. So these huge stone uh, water jars that would have been used for washing their hands and things like that, part of the, the rituals. Verse 7, Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some, of, some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs. Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. So a couple of things here. First off, we see that Jesus' first miracle is the most normal miracle of all of them. Like, I know like the, the feeding the 5,000 with fish and things like that. These are spectacular events. But his first miracle actually happens at a wedding. And he doesn't even tell anybody who did it. The only people it appears that know are his disciples and these servants who take the wine. And so we, we see Jesus actually interacting and being a part of everyday, normal life. Like he's not separated from people. He's actually a part of their community. And, and so we see him taking part in this way. Secondly, we see that when he does something, he does it better than anybody else. The master of the feast is surprised because usually they would start off with the good stuff and then eventually, you know, open the boxes or whatever. I mean, they, they would start off with something good and then they would end up as everybody kind of filters out and, and as the week goes on and just begin to give them less and less quality uh, wine. Well, <clears throat> by the end of it, they actually bring out the best stuff. Why? Because Jesus does it. He always gives the best. And so... And so he, he, he performs this miracle, and the, the master of the feast says, Wow, this is amazing. This is wonderful. I can't believe you're so generous in this way. And Jesus actually ends up making the bridegroom and his family look better than they would have. He actually protects them from this huge embarrassment. He protects them from, from having a terrible stain on their social status, if you will. Like I said, I mean, this is not life and death stuff here. This is just a normal event, and Jesus protects this young couple. Guys, he cares about everything in our lives, not just the huge earth-shattering things. He cares about everything. And when we come to him and we put our heart uh, in his hands and we put our lives in his hands, he cares about every aspect of our life. Why? Because he wants us to have real joy in real life. 
And he shows us how we can do that by taking a part with the community around us and doing what we can to make the people's lives around us better than they were when we found them. Like he invested in this young couple's life. He invested in this, this wedding party. Why? Because he cares. He cares even about the smallest of things. We, we, we have to be careful that we don't so insulate ourselves that we begin to hide behind the walls of the church and never actually go out in the community and enjoy life with the people around us. We have to be careful that we don't so separate ourselves that we never see anybody who needs to hear about Jesus. Like Jesus is the opposite of that. I mentioned a minute ago that the Pharisees, the, the, uh, the Jewish leaders didn't like him because he was always hanging out with the people they wouldn't have anything to do with. He was always going over their houses and, and doing things with them and enjoying life with them and sharing the gospel with them. And apparently they liked him. I don't know. Maybe they're jealous because nobody liked them. I, I don't know what it was, but everyone around him seemed to want to be around Jesus. And so my, my question, my first question this morning is, would people say that about you? Are you walking around with joy? And are you someone that people want to be around? Someone who people want to spend time with? Are you so angry and so not joyful that they don't want to spend time with you? Jesus is somebody who actually spreads joy and happiness. And it's that joy and happiness that he wants us to have to spread with the people around us. But that's not to say he always made people happy. Let's look at verse 12. <clears throat> After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. The temple he found, uh, uh, in the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And so what, what, what this passage begins to show us here is that Jesus wants to have real worship, like real worship, not fake worship. And this first scene shows us uh, some issues within the temple. He doesn't really like what's going on. So he's going up during the Passover of the Jews. This is when they would celebrate the fact that God had given them freedom, that God had given them hope, that because of what he had done in Egypt, they were now a people of God. And so they would celebrate this every, every year. Well, Jesus goes up to the temple. The temple's the place where they would worship. The temple's the place where they would take their animals and they would sacrifice them. Uh, and the priests would take them in and they would pray for them and all these different things would go on. Well, these people would have to journey for days at a time with their animals. I, I don't know about y'all, but I don't know how far I can carry a pigeon. Like, we can't even keep a fish in a bowl at the house alive for more than a couple of days. I can't imagine a pigeon or whatever for a couple of days or several miles, you know, on a donkey. And so, and so they, most people didn't bring their animals with them. They would buy them when they got to the temple, or they would buy them when they got to Jerusalem to make the sacrifice. It's all part of their religion. It's all part of the things that God had set up. Well, one thing he didn't set up was a marketplace in the temple. The temple is supposed to be a place of worship, a place of connecting with God, a place of worship before the holy God of the universe. But when Jesus shows up, he doesn't find a place of worship and prayer and praise. He finds the county fair. Like, Y'all know what I'm talking about, right? Like if you go to the county fair back to the livestock section, how does that smell? It ain't good, is it? You don't take a sandwich back there and eat it, do you? I mean, it's not smelling good. And so, I mean, and you can just imagine in this day with pigeons and oxen and, and sheep all kind of walking around in the temple, what the temple must have smelled like. Well, all these people crammed in there buying and selling and doing all these different things. You can imagine how nasty the temple would have been. There's not a whole lot of prayer going on in that environment. There's just nastiness and smelliness and noise and all these different things happening. There's a distractedness to this worship. It's not real worship. 
It's distracted worship. They're not able to focus on the Lord because they forgot why they even came. You see, used to, they would sell the animals outside the temple, but I guess for convenience sake, they're like, hey, let's just set up shop in here. You know, it's, it's, you know, it's how we kind of do with storage rooms in the church, right? Y- y'all know how it is. Like, we have a storage room. It's like, ah, we'll just start stuffing stuff in there. Next thing you know, it's not a room anymore. It's just a, you know, a place where there's all this stuff. Well, I, I think that's kind of what happened. For convenience sake, they just started bringing stuff in, and, and, and eventually they ended up with a market. They ended up with a place where instead of worship, they were buying and selling and trading. They weren't able to focus on the Lord. Guys, it's not a whole lot different than the way we worship sometimes. We'll sit there and we'll try to sing. And the whole time we're trying to sing or the whole time we're trying to hear from God or trying to pray, we have a thousand other things on our mind. I was sitting there this morning thinking about other things and God was convicting me. He's like, you're just about to talk to people about doing exactly what you're doing. Like I'm sitting there thinking about thermostats and stuff and God's like, what are you doing, man? You're trying to sing about Jesus dying for you. Who cares? Like sing about what matters. But sometimes when we come to worship, we bring all this other stuff what I got to do on Monday, what I got to do on Tuesday, where am I going to eat, who's going to win the game, and like all these different things, not necessarily bad things, but we don't take time to simply sit down or stand up and worship and really worship the one true God who created us. And so Jesus, this doesn't make him happy. Another reason is, is that they were using this as an opportunity to take advantage of the poor. Remember, nobody brought their animals, or if they did bring an animal, they were always considered to be not good enough. Like they bring in an animal and they'd be like, the priest would be like, eh, that's not good enough. Good thing for you, though, is I have an animal right over here. I'll trade you for that one. You can pay me a little something extra and we'll make it work. Oh, but we don't really take your coins. We need to uh, change them out. And, you know, there's a fee for that as well. Y'all know how it is. Y'all, y'all have cell phones, right? They tell you one price and then you get it and there's all these extra fees after you get it. Or, you know, you go to the movies and, you know, it's this much to get in the movie and it's like 50 bucks to buy a bag of popcorn. Right? I mean, it's ridiculous. And so this is what's going on in the temple. The poorest of the poor are coming to try and worship the Lord. And not only is it a distracted place of worship, it's a desecrated or distorted place of worship. They're not actually focusing on the Lord. They're focusing on themselves. These people are focusing on how they can get something out of it instead of lead other people to the Lord. Again, we're all guilty of this at times with our lives and during worship. We, we want it to be about us. We want it to be about what we can get out of it instead of looking at the ways that we can bring other people to him. And so Jesus wants us to have real worship and not distracted or distorted worship. Look at verse 15. Uh, and making a whip of cords, he drove them out, all out of the temple with his sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons... Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. And so Jesus gets angry. And, and, and John gives us a picture here that, that's pretty interesting, right? And it says here that he makes a whip of cords. And so these would have been ropes. And so you can picture Jesus kind of standing up there watching all this as he's slowly getting these ropes together and kind of wrapping them together, making a, making a whip. You can imagine somebody being like, what you got there, buddy? He's like, I'm about to show you. Just give me a second, right? I mean, y'all, y'all about to find out. And so he, he makes this whip, and then he begins to run everybody out of the temple. He begins to run all these animals and everything out of the temple. He's like, this is not the place for this. This is not the place to be buying and selling and trading. This is the place to worship the God of the universe. 
and you're worried about you know all these different things about making money and about selling animals and that's not the purpose he says my father's house is not a house of trade my father's house is not a place to come and get something out of it uh, financially it's a place to come and worship the one true God now I mean it sounds a little different than what we think of typically when we think of Jesus right we think of meek and mild Jesus. But here we see the, the, the lion coming out of him, right? Why? Because it, you want to upset him. You start taking advantage of other people in the name of the Lord. You start doing things that hurt his people and, and start doing things that distract from worshiping the very true God of the universe. It, he deals with people who act that way much differently than he deals with others. His passion comes out when it comes to protecting his people, when it comes to protecting the glory of the Father. And so he runs them out. He says, this is not what worship is. Real worship is focused worship on the one true God. Verse 18, <clears throat> so they, they have a question about this. They say, so, they said, so the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Like, what right do you have to come in and tell us this? Now, it's obvious that what they were doing was wrong. I don't even think they didn't know that it was wrong. I think they knew that it was wrong. But that's not the, what they focus on. They focus on whether or not Jesus ought to be able to tell them that it was wrong. You know, so they don't focus on what they were doing. They focus on the one who told them not to do it. Sort of like, you know, if somebody tell, points out something in your life that you know you ought not be doing, you're like, well, who are you to tell me that? You know, now that you mention it, I, I just all of a sudden notice there's some things in your life you ought to get right too. You know what I mean? Like somebody comes to you like, hey, John, you really need to get this right. And you're like, you're right, I probably should, but let me tell you about 20 things that are wrong with you. And then we'll talk about it. Right? I mean, we, we don't always like people correcting us and telling us that we're wrong. We never like people correcting us and telling us we're wrong. And so what they want to do, rather than admitting they're wrong, is simply discredit Jesus. Simply say, you have no right. What sign do you have? How can you possibly... Uh, say this uh, right now that you are able to do this. You have the authority to do this. And so, verse 19, Jesus answers them. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? And so Jesus says to them, you want a sign? Destroy this temple, and in three days I'll have it back up and going. Like, oh, wait, it took us like 46 years to build this. How are you going to do it in three days? Now, he calls their bluff, but he, the way that he words it and the, what he says here, there's something more going on here than simply the temple. It says in verse 21, John clarifies what Jesus means. He wasn't talking about the earthly temple, the temple that they were standing in. Look at verse 21. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the Scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. You see, what Jesus is actually saying to them is, my body will be destroyed, but in three days I will be raised up. And this is exactly what takes place. Jesus eventually goes to the cross, and he dies. But then three days later, he rises from the, from the grave, and he comes, he comes back in a fully alive body uh, to show that he is conquered death and sin on our, in our place. And so Jesus goes and he pays our penalty and he pays our price and then he comes back to life after he dies in our place. This temple that they were standing in no longer exists. This way of worship, this way of sacrifice, 
no longer exists. Why? Well, because Jesus made the final sacrifice. He made the ultimate sacrifice. The blood of bulls and goats can never take away our sins. The author of Hebrews says, there's only one who could do it. His name is Jesus. So this new temple is the body of Jesus. He's saying, I'm, I'm replacing this. That you will no longer come to the temple to meet God. You will come to me. The place that we meet with God now is Jesus. He is our meeting place with God where sinful man and holy God come together and meet. It is Jesus. We now enter into the Holy of Holies by the blood of Jesus. The author of Hebrews tells us again. He replaces the temple in that sense. He is the place we go to worship. Guys, we, we no longer go to a place to worship. We go to a person to worship. We'll see that later in John 4. Jesus is changing everything about what these people think. Everything about what we think. He, he wants you to have real worship with Him. He's cleared the way. He wants you to run out all the stinky old animals that are stinking up your life and your heart and your mind so that you can focus on Him. He wants you this morning to get rid of all of those distractions and quit thinking about all that other stuff and just take a moment and say, Lord, what would you have me to see? How would you have me serve you? How can I live for you? How can I praise you? That's what real worship is about. If we want real worship this morning... We must rid our minds and our hearts of all this other junk and focus on Him. He wants us to have real joy in real life with real people. And the way we do that is through real worship. He's not interested in us coming in and punching a time clock and throwing people's bread across the, the room. He's interested in us coming and actually taking time to spend time with Him. It's interesting the difference between these two scenes. The first scene at the wedding feast, Jesus makes wine. The second scene, at the worship service, he makes a whip. I wonder what he would do in our hearts. I wonder what he would do in our worship services. Would he come in and say, these people are enjoying real worship and serving me and serving the purpose I've given them? Or would he say, man, I've got to clean some stuff up around here. They've made my father's house a house of trade. They've not actually been focused on what I've called them to do. They're not actually investing in their community and the people around them. They're not gathering to lift up the name of the Lord. Is that what he would say? Would he say, these people, they get it. They want to worship the Lord. What about your own heart, guys? How much stuff does he need to run out of your heart this morning? How much stuff is in your life that he says, get out? And so when, when is the last time you were happy? When's the last time you enjoyed life? I really believe that true happiness and true joy is tied to true worship. I know that's true in my own heart and in my own life. I can always tell when I haven't been worshiping well and spending time with the Lord well. That's where I find discouragement and depression and those things start creeping in. Because I'm not focusing on the one who can actually bring happiness and actually bring joy. The one who's made a way for me to meet with God through his body that he gave in my place, through his blood that he shed for me. Is that true for you this morning? Are you truly worshiping them? Look at verse 23. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. And so this, this last section here, we're going to see that we have to have, we're called to have real faith in a real Savior. Uh, these people look at everything that Jesus is doing and they believe on him. They believe in his name. That sounds good, right? We, we like this idea. They saw what he did and so they believed on his name. In fact, we would say, hey, if I was there and I got to see what Jesus was doing, I would believe too. That's a no-brainer. We saw, we, if we got to see everything he did, of course we would believe. I mean, many people believe that. They believe if I just saw the miracles, it would be so much easier to believe. But then in verse 24, 
We read this. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and he needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. Or to put it more literally, Jesus had no faith in their faith. Like when you read it here in the original, it's the same word repeated over and over. They, they believed, but they didn't really believe and Jesus really knew that they didn't really believe. John tells us that Jesus knew what was in their hearts just as he knows what is in the heart of all men, of all people. Like we talked about last week, guys. You can't hide who you really are from Him. You can't hide what you really believe from Him. You can't hide your heart from Him. He sees it. These people saw His signs. They saw these amazing miracles. But they didn't have real faith. Eventually we'll see that a group of people who know that Jesus raised the man from the dead, rather than believing in Jesus, try to figure out a way to kill Jesus because they're afraid people are going to believe in Him because He raised someone from the dead. If you're committed to not believing, guess what? You won't believe. Like If you refuse to believe, then you won't believe. If you're saying, I need another sign to believe, you won't believe. It's not going to happen. I, I, I know, and I know this to be true even in my own life as a Christian. There will be times where I go season, through seasons of doubt when, doubt, when doubts will come to my mind. You know when those doubts come to my mind? When I don't want to do what he's telling me to do. Who are you to tell me what to do? What sign will you show me, Jesus, that tells me this is what I ought to be doing? Then all of a sudden, I allow those doubts in because I really don't want to believe him. I don't really want to trust him in that moment. I want to do what I want to do. But here's what happens. God will remind me that I actually do believe. He has a way of doing that. I don't know about y'all, but he, he's pretty good at beating you up. He gets out his whip, right? But, but he, he'll say, no, you really do believe. And then, and then when it's, I, I'm like, oh, yeah, I do believe. I do trust. I do want to believe. All of a sudden, those doubts, they're, they're really not as big a deal as I thought they were. All of a sudden, they, they go away, and I, I can see clearly who I'm really trusting and who I'm really believing in. And so if you're, if you're here this morning and you have doubts in your heart and doubts in your mind, ask yourself, do you really want to believe? If you do, then ask the Lord, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Help me submit to you. Help me trust in you. Help me figure out the place in my life where I'm being rebellious. The place in my life where I'm refusing to give this thing up because I don't like what you're telling me. If you, if you have those doubts this morning, ask Him to reveal to you those places and repent of that and turn back to Him. Turn back to the one who has provided a way for you to be saved. Turn back to the one who's provided a way for you to know Him, to meet with God through His body. Turn back to the one who died in your place. Where, where do you go from here this morning? You, you, the first option is obvious, right? You can go out of here and not change anything. A lot of people do. You can choose to reject Him. And you can go on and, and, and be miserable, not believing and not trusting. That is absolutely an option. Another option is to take Jesus seriously and realize that He does want you to enjoy life. Realize that He does want you to know Him more, that He does want real worship from you. He wants you to trust on Him. He wants you to believe on Him. He wants you to go out and make other people's lives less miserable through sharing the gospel and through sharing the love that Jesus has shown you. <laughs> it's interesting how God will do things to you. I've been thinking about that, that, that lady since yesterday. Uh, and I was thinking, I wonder what would have happened if I was more worried about her joy than mine. If I was more worried about her having a good experience at work than I was than I was worried about me having a good experience checking out. What, what would have changed if my attitude would have been, Lord, you sent me out here to help the people around me, 
not be served by everybody I meet. Because I wonder how often we miss opportunities to be like Christ because instead of worshiping Him and serving Him and enjoying Him, we're focused on ourselves and we're, we're distracted by all the junk in our lives. I, I, I wonder this morning if the reason why we're not spreading joy is because we've forgotten that's our job. We've forgotten that's what we've been called to do. We want other people to do their job. Our job is to spread joy. Our job is to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ, which brings joy. It's really hard to tell somebody, hey, Jesus brings you joy when you've got a frown on your face. Ask yourself, why, is, why do I feel this way? Am I truly worshiping him? Am I truly serving him? Or am I too focused on myself to care? If this morning you've trusted on him, you've believed on him, be reminded that there's nothing left for you to do. He is the temple. You don't need to bring a sacrifice and get ripped off by some corrupt priest. He has already made the sacrifice, his own body on the, on the cross. He has already made every sacrifice that needs to be made. He simply calls you to come and trust on him and believe on him and be saved. If you've done that, then there's nothing left for you to do but simply trust on him and be reminded of that. If you've never trusted on him, if you've never believed on him, Guys, there's nothing left for you to do but simply ask Him to forgive you. Ask Him to save you. And guess what? He will. He asks you to put your faith in Him. He's already paid for your sins. You don't have to pay for your sins. He already took care of that. All you have to do is reach out and take it. All you have to do is reach out and take the salvation He's offering you right now. If you've never done that, will you trust on Him right now? I'm going to pray for us. And as I pray, ask yourself, have you put your faith in Jesus? And if you have, are you living for Him? Let's pray. Father, I pray, God, I pray that as we just take this moment to reflect on who you are and what you're calling us to, Lord, I pray that you would open our hearts and our ears and our eyes, God, to see and to hear and to know what it is you're calling us to, Lord. I pray that those here who don't know you, Lord, that you would make it very apparent and that they would come to you in faith, that they would trust on you that they would believe on you, that they would know you. God, I pray that they would submit themselves to you and that they 